0: Welcome to Guest Cast. Tune in and listen as we speak to global education experts about the latest trends, challenges and stories that matter. Hello and welcome to another Guest Cast episode. We're thrilled to be joined in this episode by Rebecca Rowlands, the author of The Art of Talking with Children, um, a book to enhance your relationship With kids. Um, And it's being translated into eight languages at the moment, including Chinese, Korean, and Spanish, and will soon be available in nine foreign territories. So, a global domination for the book. (laughs) Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. And why don't you tell me a bit about your background and how you ended up doing what you do?
1: Yeah, so I've always had a really big passion for communication and realizing how communication impacts our relationships. Uh, I started out as a teacher and then became a researcher focused on speech and language. I started to realize how much speech and language actually impacts what's happening in the classroom, how sort of everyday language really affects the ways that we communicate, the ways that teachers and students are feeling about each other and the way learning happens. And I found this happens for parents as well. So I became a mom myself and I realized that a lot of these lessons were applicable in the classroom as well as for parents, and that's kind of where a lot of my research has
0: come from. Brilliant! And um, we—I touched on it. Um, you're, you've just released a book, *The Art of Talking with Children: The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids*. And um, tell me a bit more about the process to become published, and um, why you decided to write a book, and um, just just about the book. And 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 that would be great. Sure. Yeah. So
1: I'm a speech language pathologist um, by training, and I also teach at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Harvard Medical School. So as part of that, I've done a lot of research in terms of the most effective ways of communicating with kids. So how do we actually support them in building our bonds, but also in building their kindness, creativity, and confidence? So I realized a lot of that as a researcher, but then I became a parent and I realized that we actually don't do a lot of this intentionally. So I realized that in my own life, um, I was often on autopilot. I wasn't thinking about these strategies. And I realized there wasn't a lot you know, in the literature in terms of how we can do this. How can we actually make the kinds of conversations happen that will build children's kindness, creativity, and confidence? So there's a lot of research out there, but there wasn't actually a lot to say, well, what are the actual strategies that uh, we can use. How does this actually play out in real life? Um, So I had a lot of fun. I actually have a fiction background and um, I have a master's in fine arts in fiction writing. And so I actually had a lot of fun in blending stories and research um, into my journey. So I undertook a huge journey of interviewing linguists, psychologists, um, neuroscientists, and so on to figure out, well, what are the biggest research-based takeaways And then I blended that with stories from my own parenting life, my own teaching life, and from that of the students, parents, and teachers that I knew. Um, So really, the idea was to come away with actionable strategies, but actually to be humble and realize that all of these have to work in real life.
0: Definitely. And I think that's what's very powerful about certain um, education tools is that sort of basis in real life learning. And was this... uh, I mean, we, we know it's a very important thing, well-being, and I think it's come to the forefront since the pandemic. Um, did you find that was sort of a catalyst for writing this book or did it influence it in any way? Yes, it's interesting because actually I began the idea for this book
1: before the pandemic started. Um, and then as it came and the pandemic happened, I realized that this was just even more of an urgent topic. I mean, there's more and more research coming out now on the impact of the pandemic on language skills but even on social skills, social emotional learning, um, and really the need to support resilience in students. And so I realized that actually this comes at a really perfect time when kids do and students do often need to catch up. They are feeling a sense of disconnection. And at the same time, a lot of teachers and parents are feeling similarly disconnected. So I think that these kind of strategies are something that we can use even
0: more now for sure. Brilliant. And I think uh, one of the things I read about the book was there's an approach of rich talk. Do you want to tell me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So the idea here is that I've developed a framework called rich talk, which is to jumpstart these more meaningful conversations. And there are three components. So the first is it goes ABC. The first is A. (laughs) So just really, you know, teacher friendly. Um, And the first is A, so meaning adaptive. And this means that your talk should respond to where a child is now. Um, That means partly their ages and stages, but also to their temperament, their mood, um, the type of classroom they're in, the number of students and so on. So we're always trying to adapt to the situations that we find ourselves in with students. Um, B is back and forth. And that means to really notice and respond to how much we're talking versus how much students are talking. Oftentimes we find that, for example, teachers are not giving a lot of wait time. So students who may be slower processing or have difficulty coming up quickly with answers are not speaking as much. There tends to be a lot of teacher talk. So the back and forth is really just an invitation to think about, well, how much are we talking as the adult and how much is the student talking and expanding their own responses? And finally, the C stands for child-driven. This really means that we can scaffold or support children in their learning much more when we're actually starting with where they're at. So that means what they're thinking about, they're worried about, or even what their understanding is of something. Um, And one example is I was recently walking with my daughter and we saw Ukrainian flags um, like a protest. And she said, oh, I thought wars had already finished sort of hundreds of years ago. Um, And so actually that comment allowed me to realize, okay, she has a certain understanding. And so I can build on that. We could have a conversation based on that. Um, So that's really what I mean by child driven is starting with a child's understanding and building from there.
0: And what sort of tips would you give for people who are sort of starting with this approach to sort of get to grips with it? Um, Because it is sometimes challenging to know Mm -hmm. what to say to children, especially when they ask you a difficult question.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I would say really to start this in very small chunks. Um, So for example, take five or 10 minutes, sit with a child, see what they say first, and then be open to taking the conversation where they're interested in taking it just for five or 10 minutes. Um, And one really important thing is to just admit when we don't know something. So especially to welcome these kinds of difficult questions, and to go on that learning journey along with a child. So oftentimes we want to push those questions away or we might feel embarrassed and say, oh, I don't know, or, oh, we have to look that up. But it's actually so valuable to do these kind of verbal think alouds with a child. So to explain, for example, well, I think I know this, but I'm not sure about that. Um, So when you're opening yourself um, up to a child and telling what you know and don't know, you're actually modeling for them the process of being open to curiosity and being willing to explore. So I think that that could be a great start, especially if you have one of those difficult questions, just to admit what you don't know, and then to actually try to find something out together.
0: That's, that's really interesting, because I mean, children by nature are are very perceptive and also very honest, which is something <laughs> sort of adults almost de-learn as they yes. get older.
1: Exactly. Yes. And I think that 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 can be so um, important for us to remember is that really kids don't often want someone who's sort of the oracle telling them the answers. They want someone who's going to engage them in their curiosity and to value that curiosity and to say, oh, that is an interesting question. Um, And I especially encourage this idea that if you do actually find something interesting or you don't actually know something, that is a really good opportunity for us because the more engaged we are, the more engaged a child will be, you know. So if you can actually go with your own curiosity and say, oh, I actually don't know how gravity works on Mars, or I actually don't know, you know, like how mm-hmm. many planets are in the universe or something like that, um, you know, that that can be a fun opportunity and also a really great learning experience.
0: And and I guess as well, it's quite daunting for teachers. I think, you know, they're faced with ever advancing and quickening pace of technology and having to get to grips with that. And then, you know, you're expected by nature, I suppose, as a teacher to to know what you're talking about. Yeah. So how would you sort of advise teachers in this scenario?
1: Yes. I mean, I think one thing that's really important to emphasize is that even if you're if you're teaching science, but even if you're teaching any (laughs) any kind of (laughs) discipline um, that, you know, to make this kind of statement in general and kind of have this framework that scientists are people who don't know things, actually. You know, so they are people who and people, you know, philosophers and writers, they're people who start with what they don't know. Um, So actually, if we had all of the answers, there would be no need to go you know, write a research grant or no need to go exploring because we would already know these things. Um, so actually to make it clear to children that yes, as a teacher, there are things I'm supposed to know, <laughs> there are things I know, um, but there's actually a lot more out there that I don't know. And that's a normal thing. And that's actually a really great thing because there would be no discovery or nothing new if we all sat and we just had the answers to everything. Um, So this, I think, makes it a lot less static and a lot less frightening, I think, to start answering these questions or start asking questions. Um, And really helping students realize that as a scientist or as a thinker, the important thing is to refine your questions. So you learn something and then your question changes, you know, it becomes more complex, it becomes more aware, whatever, but it's not as though you ever run out of questions. So I think that that can be a really important attitude to instill in students
0: and we were chatting a bit before the the podcast started about the sort of urgency is this now do you want to talk a bit more about that
1: yes definitely so i do think that now especially we're at a moment when a lot of students have been for over a couple of years um, really isolated really disconnected and kind of attending more toward technology and really passive uses Um, So they've been kind of using their phones more, scrolling more through social media. Um, At the same time, a lot of young babies and toddlers, you know, are also facing delays in part because of um, some of the isolation and stress. And so I think um, I've actually developed this idea of a double promise um, from these kind of meaningful conversations. And I think that's especially important now. And this double promise is that the first part of the promise, um, you and your students will feel more connected in the moment. So I think that as we're wondering, you know, how can we reduce stress for teachers and students? How can we support teachers in not feeling burnt out? Um, these kinds of intentional purposeful conversations really do help with that because they promote engagement and they support students in actually moving forward from a place of curiosity rather than anxiety. Uh, The second part of the double promise is that these small moments and these small interactions actually accumulate. So we don't see it in the moment, but children are actually developing creativity. They're developing their confidence and even their sense of kindness and empathy over time through these kinds of back and forth conversations. So I think especially now, when we're worried about students, we're worried about their mental health. And obviously, in many places, there are teacher shortages and teacher burnout. This is just such an important topic.
0: It really is. I mean, and also sort of, I think as well as feeling isolated, there's almost been a sort of sense of information overload, I think, as mm-hmm. well with, with young people and, and, and children, with which is sort of increasing worry and anxiety. There's sort of big global issues at play that, you know, are unsettling for us all, but particularly I think children at the moment.
1: Definitely. Yes. I've met so many students and so many families where The students are saying, you know, oh, I spend a lot of time scrolling on YouTube and I see all of these, you know, terrifying things or upsetting things. And I've even spoken to a lot of teachers where their students are very, very anxious about things like climate change um, or about um, the pandemic or other things. And in part, it's because they are experiencing so much information on a daily basis and so much that's just available immediately. And I think what's so important about these conversations is that they act as a framework. They help students actually process a lot of the information that they're getting. So rather than saying, oh, we're not going to have any of that information, clearly they're still going to be exposed to it, at least at some degree. Um, But they'll have a kind of filter by engaging in these conversations that supports them to understand and to put things in context. So they're not feeling overly anxious or overly concerned in ways that they don't need to be.
0: And I guess also teaching them in terms of sort of, I guess, mental well-being and health not to bottle things up to feel like they can talk about things. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, definitely. So I think that that is a really critical thing is just to feel as though all emotions are welcome and that difficult feelings are welcome. Um, There's a lot of really interesting research on what's called emotional reminiscing, which is just the idea that we can talk about difficult things that happened in the past and actually explore and expand on those events in ways that support students' mental health. So rather than saying, oh, that was hard, we're not going to talk about it, actually by talking about it, really exploring what happened, and especially by focusing on students' strengths. So how did they cope with that event? You know, what strengths did they show in that difficult time? That actually makes coping stronger. It helps students learn that they could cope And it gives them a lot of strategies for the next time something happens. So I do think especially talking about things that are difficult, if we can do it well, is so important for student mental health.
0: And I guess sort of lessons we can take on board as adults as well.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yes, I think that there's been some research on that as well. And I think for sure this idea that, you know, if we are able to see, for example, the redemptive value in some things that are suffering. So what actually, what good came out of that? Or, you know, what strengths have I learned? Um, This is something that for adults facing mental health challenges or or any adults, um, this is really important as a coping mechanism too.
0: Amazing. Um, So I wanted to also chat a bit more about you and um, your sort of career. So what do you enjoy most about what you do now?
1: Um, So I would say I really enjoy having these kinds of conversations, actually. So I enjoy um, working with students, working with families, and also just speaking about the importance of these things. Because I see, um, when I hear back from teachers and from families, I see things where teachers are telling me, for example, oh, I I can now hear the wheels turning of my students. You know, I can now actually hear how they're thinking. I hear their learning process, and I'm able to help them a lot more. Um, When I'm able to hear those things, I think it's so fun for me to realize that these kinds of small conversational shifts can have really important uh, outcomes.
0: And I think that that's great. And that sort of uh, leads me on to, I guess, the polar opposite. Mm -hmm. And perhaps one of the most important questions um, is about your career low. And what was it? How did you overcome it? And what did you learn from it?
1: Yes, uh, that's a great question. So I would say, um. I part of what made me go into my doctorate in education, actually, is that I was a speech language pathologist, um, and I realized I was trying lots and lots of strategies with students. um, And I just realized there wasn't a lot of research out there in terms of what actually was effective for them in terms of how I was working with them in terms of the types of strategies. Um, We know, for example, there's so much out there in terms of how to teach reading, so we have very specific understanding of, okay, these are the strategies that are effective, these are the ones that are not as effective, but in terms of this kind of oral language and conversation, we really just don't know a lot, Um, and so I felt at the close of my one year working with um, high school students especially, I felt very frustrated because I felt as if, well, I really have worked hard, I try to engage with the students, I built, I think, great relationships with them, but I'm just not sure if what I'm doing is useful, um, and that's what really led me actually to get my doctorate and to do a lot of this research to make sure that what I was suggesting, what I was putting into practice did have some scientific backing.
0: Brilliant. I mean, that must be quite challenging. I think if you're you're looking at sort of the softer skills in terms of people being more open um, children asking questions, I mean, how how would you go about measuring that?
1: Yes, I think um, there's a couple of ways. So I would say first, just to really take a qualitative approach. So actually look at what students are saying and their daily work. Um, I think a lot of times we focus on large scale, high stakes testing as an outcome. Uh, You know, We say, well, how much have children improved in reading? How much has their math improved? And obviously those are important data points. But I think what we don't always focus on is just how beneficial it can be for teachers to really take kind of daily check-ins and, you know, check-ins not just about those academic skills, but even about, well, how much is a student responding in class? Um, how much are they actually engaging with other students? Um, and what are their comments like? So I like to say and to suggest that teachers do have the kind of um, check-ins and kind of writing to um kind of like exit interviews in some way. So like little moments where they're able to write on a scrap of paper, you know, what was something that they learned today? What was something that frustrated them today? What was something they wondered um, today? And just kind of making a record of that over time, I think gives you a really great indication of where students are in their learning journey, but also where they are in their relationships with you and with other students.
0: That's really interesting. Thank you. And then, um, can you tell me about your career high? Um, yeah, so I would say, um, I think probably
1: working on and finally f- publishing this book was probably my career high, <laughs> uh, because it did take a lot of effort and multiple drafts, um, and just so much pulling together from different fields, different interviews. Um, and I think what was most interesting about that was that I was able to bring together these multiple strands. So actually, what we know from the research with stories from my own life. Um, and stories from clinical work and what I've learned as a speech pathologist and so I think for me that ability to kind of put all the pieces together and then um, make it accessible uh, I think was something that was really satisfying to me
0: right and as well I mean you've touched on the fact you mentioned that you're a fiction writer and also a poet and tell me more a bit about that you published or is it just what (laughs)
1: tell me well yes yes yeah so I actually have um three books of poetry Mm -hmm. out um one full length and two chapbooks and I have a another full length collection coming out next year um and so it is something that I'm very passionate about I'm currently working on a couple of novels as well Um, and I really don't see those things as disconnected actually so I've always been fascinated by language and storytelling and I support students in doing that as well. So I help them with writing, how they're writing, and even how they're telling stories orally. Um, that to me is really fascinating to do as work with students. But at the same time, I think it's really important to me that I model following my own creative interest as well. So actually showing that, yes, I'm able to you know explore these questions with you, but I also have my own um, questions, my own passions. And I do think that, um, Trying to get that out there and trying to pursue those interests um, is something that hopefully um, will be a good model for students as they
0: pursue their creative interests as well. And if people want to find your books, I'm guessing they can find them on Amazon.
1: Yes, they can find them on Amazon. There's also the HarperCollins website. Um, Or you can find me at my website as well, which is just RebeccaRoland.com. And it's two C's in Rebecca and two L's in Roland.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. And one of the other questions we like to ask everyone is the one piece of advice that you'd give your younger self.
1: That's a great question. Um, I would say to be open to exploration and to realize that um, things that seem not so great in the moment, there may be kind of a flip side that's positive on the other end.
0: Brilliant. Um, And where do you sort of see the future of education? Yeah,
1: so I think um, I really see the future of education as empowering students and teachers. Um, I really want to support um, from the youngest ages, children to be able to take ownership of their own learning and for teachers to have ownership and the ability to manage their own classrooms with um, some greater leeway as well. Um, I think especially as we're facing big issues like climate change, like pandemics and so on, um, we really need to equip students with the ability to think creatively and to collaborate um, and not simply just creatively in general, but to merge creativity with an ethical sense of what they should do. And so I think those kinds of um, work really need to happen through um, in-person back-and-forth conversation, as well as a lot of project-based learning, I think, will support students in learning from their peers as well.
0: Brilliant. Um. Thank you so much. It was so interesting to chat to you and you've touched on some really interesting topics there. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Thanks for joining this week's guest cast. Make sure you visit our website, guesteducation.com, the essential resource for educators to subscribe to the podcast and to enjoy the latest education news.